Welcome to Storytelling for Impact, the podcast about people who tell stories that change the world. I'm Susanna Birkwood, an international journalist turned NGO communications professional with over a decade's experience working for some of the world's best-known media and not-for-profit organizations. Is the system of foreign correspondence outdated? Is what some people call parachute journalism patronising and colonialistic? Or do we still need people who can offer a fresh perspective on crises and conflicts in distant parts of the world? These are the questions we're digging into in episode 5 of Storytelling for Impact when we meet Thin Lei Wen. Thin is a freelance journalist living in Italy and covering food security and climate change globally after nearly 13 years reporting on environmental and humanitarian stories for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Born and raised in Yangon, Myanmar, she is also founder and former chief correspondent of Myanmar Now News Agency and co-founder of the non-profit storytelling project The Kite Tales, which chronicles the lives and histories of ordinary people across Myanmar. Thin took issue on Twitter recently with a reporting trip undertaken by CNN International to Myanmar shortly after the military coup there, suggesting that through its visit to the country, CNN had caused harm to Burmese citizens, 11 of whom were detained for speaking to CNN's reporter. Critics like Thin said the media outlet's self-congratulatory portrayal of its own reporting did a disservice to the vital work of plenty of journalists on the ground in Myanmar, as well as elsewhere in Asia. Unlike CNN foreign correspondent Clarissa Ward, they didn't have protection or permission of the military junta to do their jobs, but they still did them, at great risk to their lives, in order to document the human rights abuses taking place under their noses. I just had to get Thin on the show to unpack why this trip prompted such a tsunami of criticism and explore whether the foreign correspondence system in general is due a reckoning. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Thin, thanks so much for joining us for Storytelling for Impact. Thanks for having me, Susanna. How is everything where you are? I believe you're in Rome at the moment, is that right? Yes, indeed I am in Rome. Um you know, it is starting to feel a bit more like spring and uh, Rome, at least the region where Rome is, Lazio, is opening up again. So it's nice to have some sense of normalcy, even if a lot of what I'm covering these days, you know, about what's happening back home in Myanmar just feels very suffocating and depressing. So it's it's nice to have something that is a little bit lighter, perhaps, in terms of being able to go out and, you know, just eat outside and for about half an hour, forget what's happening back home. Definitely. Um, and you, uh, you've had a bit of a transition in, in your career recently, haven't you? You were working for Thompson Reuters Foundation for a number of years, and you've moved to be freelance. I mean, during your time at Thompson Reuters, I think you came into contact with a few colleagues of mine at WWF. Yours, yours and my paths have never really crossed. But yeah, just really interested to know how you're finding the transition and, and your new focus. Yeah, so I was with the Thomson Reuters Foundation, which is the non-profit arm of the you know Thomson Reuters Media Agency, for almost thirteen years. Um, I joined in um, two thousand and eight, and I was their first non on on 
the environment um, and social, economic, human rights. There's just so many aspects. So I wanted to focus on that. But um, as life happens, two weeks after I went freelance, there was a coup in Myanmar, um, which is where I'm from. So now um, for the last three months, pretty much 80% of the work I've been doing has been um, on Myanmar, actually. So it's been it's been slightly um, slightly discombobulating but also really interesting. Mm. And your perspective on on Myanmar and the international work that you've done is a a big reason that I want to talk to you today, actually, because as you know, I'm I'm keen to really dig into this question of has the foreign correspondent had its heyday? You know, is that system, is it time for reform? And the reason I want to ask about this is because of this recent reporting trip that CNN International took to Myanmar in the wake of the military coup, which took place on February 1st. And they received a huge amount of criticism for sending their international correspondent Clarissa Ward to the country. And you were one of the people that that took issue with their reporting and, and you posted about this on Twitter could you tell us what it was that concerned you about this trip? Sure. Um, I guess, you know, just very briefly to just answer your question as to whether, you know, is it time to sort of change it? Uh, yes, I do. And I think it's been time to change this for a very long time. But having said that, perhaps, you know, I think um, I just want to uh, uh, go back a little bit. You know, I really didn't want to criticize another journalist. I very rarely do that, and particularly another female journalist, you know, um, just for doing parachute journalism, you know, solidarity and all that, you know, among female journalists or just females in general. I really believe in that. You know, but also because I've I've been a parachute journalist myself many times, so I get it. I get this, you know, desire to be the first person there or cover one of the world's biggest news stories and to have the access. Um, like I remember vividly, you know, watching this the the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and earthquake, and I was in the UK actually doing my masters in multimedia journalism at that point, and watching it all unfold on the Boxing Day uh, with my then boyfriend's family, you know, and I think it was either an ITV or a BBC reporter who happened to be on a beach in Thailand with his family for Christmas holidays, and when the tsunami hit, um, and he was saying how he ran back into his hotel room to get his camera, um, and someone was incredulous uh, while we were watching this, and they were like, why? Why was he doing it? He should be running. Whereas I remember thinking, oh, but that's what I would do, do. Exactly. I would literally try and find a way to record this because I am in this moment of historical uh, importance, something that's happening, a breaking news. So I get that desire. I, I understand why you want to do this. Um, and I also happen to think not all parachute journalism is bad because there are things that you can do, you know, that would not be harmful to the local communities that you are reporting on. And especially if the parachute journalist is somebody from the same region with, with the knowledge of the region and, and the sensitivities that come with it. And I think it's also rem- important to remember that sometimes local journalists can't do some of, you know, the perhaps harder hitting reporting or, or, or question the authorities because of 
laws, local laws or security reasons. And sometimes people coming from the outside can have a little bit more leeway in terms of what they can get away with. You know, like, for example, some of the most insightful reportings and commentaries that I've seen around things like Brexit or what's happening in terms of US politics, whether it's the Trump presidency or the riots um, at Capitol Hill on the January 6th, you know, they have come from people on the outside. So I'm not always against parachute journalism. Now, having said all of that, I waded into this whole controversy around the CNN reporting. Um, and I think we also need to remember that it wasn't just the CNN who was there, even though they said it was exclusive. There was also a journalist from Southeast Asia Globe with them. You know, and I waded into that controversy um, for, for a few reasons. So I just want to perhaps break up some of the, the, the issues that I had or have. Um, I think the first one was just the need to be transparent about why you're there for and how you got there. So that trip was arranged uh, by a, a lobbyist for the military hunter in Myanmar, um, a guy who, you know, has called some of the worst dictators um, as his client. Um, now, the Globe has admitted that it was this guy, Ben Ari, who arranged the trip. The CNN had, didn't from what I remember, never really acknowledged that that was how the trip came about. Um, and here I'm not talking about money changing hands, uh, which, by the way, um, stemmed out of, of people in Myanmar not understanding how the media works, right? When they first discovered the CNN was coming, they were really worried that the CNN was going to side with the hunter um, and that, you know, they accepted money from either the hunter or the lobbyists, and that was what's going to happen. Now, you and I both know that no self-respecting media would accept money to cover a news story. It just does not happen. Having said that, I think they still should have been really transparent about the fact that this trip was arranged by the hunter lobbyist and also what did the hunter promise them and did they promise anything in return in terms of coverage? I think they needed to be transparent about that. They, they, they never did. Um, I guess another aspect is not to make the story all about yourself. Um, I think as journalists, we have to be very careful. And I think it's also, again, one of the you know first um, tenets, very important tenets of journalism is that you are there to report on the story. You are not the story. Um, and one of the reasons I took issue with the CNN coverage was, you know, the studio presenters back in the US saying, oh, the world is so lucky to have CNN in Myanmar. Um, and again, screaming this whole, you know, exclusive thing when there was an, also another journalist on the trip. And they were filing for Al Jazeera and the Washington Post as well, I believe. Yes. And also for Southeast Asia Globe. So, yes. So it was a, 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 a so it wasn't just the CNN there. Right. So I felt that was like disingenuous. Um 
And, you know, there's this whole policy of do no harm, which I really, really believe in and which I fear the CNN failed to do when the people who spoke to them were arrested. Um, and most of them, from what we understood, were released. But we still can't be sure that these people will not be rearrested um, or, or, or worse, because they're now on the radar of the hunter. And this is 11 people that were arrested after speaking to CNN's journalist, right? Yes, Yes. And um, the CNN said that eight people, um, as far as they know, were released. We still don't know what happened to the other three. We still don't know if they have been released since then or not. And that news have died down. So we don't know if uh, uh, whether these 11 people, have they gone into hiding? Are they still there? What's happening with them? We, we, we don't know. Um, and and my, my concern, you know, was that, and like I said in my, my my long Twitter thread, you know, this there's this policy that exists, and you know, a lot of it is obviously for humanitarian agencies, aid agencies, but I think it also really applies to journalism, particularly when we are going into a country where we know the authorities are really restrictive and oppressive, and as a foreign journalist, you can leave any time, but anybody. Anybody that became associated with you, they're stuck there. They and their families, they have to live there probably for the rest of their lives. And you really need to be very, very careful about the long-term consequences um, that they will face. So it needs to be, you know, taken into account. It that, So, you know, one of the, 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 the reasoning that they said was that, oh, we couldn't stop them from coming to talk to us because um, lots of people basically gathered around the cnn team and wanted to have their voices heard when when they were in the country right yes exactly um but it was also because they went into they went to a very crowded market where for sure people will come up to them because so you know you need i think one thing that you need to understand and i grew up in myanmar in the 80s and the 90s when the country was so isolated and the fear that we had that the rest of the world had forgotten about us and don't care about us um it, it's 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 very prevalent um and what the people in myanmar are really worried now and also when the cnn went was was the same fear that oh my god because there's been this internet shutdown um you know, the, the, the authorities at the Hunter has really restricted communications. People have forgotten about Myanmar. People have forgotten about us. And so they wanted to take any opportunity to, to tell the rest of the world. And when you have somebody like the CN, you know, Clarissa Ward from CNN there, you are going to risk speaking to, to, to people like that. Um, and I think if, you know, you need to be a bit more responsible in even trying to go to a very crowded marketplace, knowing full well that people will approach you. I mean, my my question was, you know, why, I mean, if you needed local colour, there are a lot of great local journalists and stringers in Myanmar and citizen journalists that can do that for you without putting people in danger. You know, you can uh, 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 um, 
interview them, you can distort their voices, you can not show their faces, they will still be okay. And, you know, one of the things the CNN said and Clarissa said was, you know, they really wanted to hold um, the hunters' feet to the fire. Sure, why not go in and just really um, speak to the military, just focus on the military, how they operate, what they say, and then do the other aspect um, with local journalists and stringers. Do you know what I mean? So that you can still protect the ordinary people, but you will still be able to hold a hunter accountable. So I didn't really understand why they didn't do that, why they had to be seen to be um, uh, going into the public and and speaking to people and then putting these people in in, in danger. Um, And, you know, the globe um, has been much better. Um, They were a lot more transparent. They also had a public event um, to try and talk about it. Um, But there was one thing that I still took a little bit of issue with because they were like, oh, you know, the trip was worth it because it was an unprecedented opportunity to gather a valuable and fresh perspective that could spark further international discussion. And I am quoting directly from them on this particular point. But the the, the question I have is, you know, we're not talking about Lord's Resistance Army or Joseph Kony um, or, or you know, the world's most reclusive um, armies or, or, or hunters that nobody has ever spoken to. I mean, this is a military. This is a Myanmar military that has been killing its own people since 1962. What were they going to say beyond the fact that they are doing the right thing? They weren't going to say sorry and repent on 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 camera or tell foreign journalists that they were wrong. They didn't even get an interview with Min Aung who is the Myanmar commander in chief and the coup leader, right? So in a way I would have understood if they went in and got this exclusive interview with the commander in chief that nobody had gotten and got, you know, stuff from him from straight from the horse's mouth. But they didn't. They actually got the spokesperson who has been doing press conferences um, to the local journalists. Granted, the local journalists perhaps couldn't have been as confrontational um, as Clarissa, but this is the same guy who has been doing press conferences. So there is, you know, I fear some of the criticism that I'm making sound very technical, you know, and sort of inside baseball around the media, but I still do think it is um, really important. They matter, you know, they matter uh, for the media industry. They matter also for the viewers um, because we are now in such a polarized world, right? Um, when it comes to media and reporting, and we need to be extremely careful about how we cover some things and how transparent we are about how we cover it. And I think the points that not just me, but quite a lot of um, other people have raised, they're going to have real implications on people trust in mainstream media. Um, And I think it's great that we are having this conversation and discussion. And I would actually like to see, you know, the CNN or the Globe, um, perhaps 
taking, you know, recognizing and sort of taking responsibility about some of the stuff and do a bit more soul searching on, okay, where did we go wrong there? How could we have done it better? Um, because this is an issue that's going to keep coming up again and and again and again. And it's not just going to be about Myanmar, you know. What if um, you could go into um, North Korea um, at the invitation of Kim Jong-un? Or if Assad invites you to come and see how great Syria is now, you know, you are going to come up against the same ethic questions. And we need to be able to 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 discuss this in public instead of being very defensive, um, which I thought was what the CNN did, at least initially, you know, with Clarissa saying, you know, the criticism was only coming from a handful of white male academics. Yeah, you disagreed with that, didn't you? Absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely not white. I am not male, you know, and I'm not an academic. I mean, I was born and raised in Myanmar and I am not the only one who had issues with their coverage. Um, and again, you know, one of the things that, that, that I was really worried about was, was they keep talking about the fact that, oh, this is exclusive. No journalists have been able to enter, but there are so many great journalists already within Myanmar that are you know, risking their lives to report on it. And I felt like they did not recognize that or acknowledge that until much later in the reporting process. And if there is, the, you know, my biggest criticism with parachute journalism, it would be that we take local reporters for granted um, we sometimes call them fixers when they are actually the ones that has the local knowledge and the context and the context to to make the story come alive. Um, because, you know, a lot of us, we jump in, we, if we're lucky, we spend a week um, trying to cover the latest disaster or conflict. Um, it is the local reporters that, that brings in that such important viewpoint and we don't give them enough recognition and acknowledgement and I think that is the biggest issue I have and I think that is the one thing that also really needs to change if you know because I don't think parachute journalism going to end do, do you know what I mean at least at least I don't think it's going to end anytime soon there will still be people jumping on planes and getting into conflict zones um, for all the reasons I stated above that maybe you know local journalists um, it's too unsafe for them you know there are strict local laws that they really need to worry about so sometimes it's easier to bring in somebody that can then leave um but there still needs to be a lot more um points there still need to be a lot more things to consider and i think people need to really plan um before they 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 do that instead of just trying to get the news Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. No, that's great. And you covered so many of my questions without me having to say a thing. So that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't the platform CNN gave the issue valuable, though? It is. It, it, it is. That's my thinking. That Okay, so they may not have moved the story on. They may not have added anything in terms of being more informed or more nuanced than the reporting that was already taking place by local journalists. But if their reporting doesn't reach households across the world, I guess CNN really are adding something important by doing that trip. 
Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a really great point. And, you know, that's also something that I think I always have a lot of discussions among our journalist friends and things like that. So on the one hand, yes, you know, I, I think them coming and covering was, was, was good in a sense that it sort of keeps the issue on, you know, international radar um and a lot of people in Myanmar you know they're very glad that international media turned up and and that sort of boosted their morale as well so Mm. um we need to acknowledge that but then there's also a part of me that sort of wonders okay if Bob from Wisconsin knowing that this is happening in Myanmar would it actually make any material or practical change in the lives of people in the country i'm not sure and that's a lot harder to quantify and measure as well maybe maybe you know bob decides that he's going to write into his um, senator or congressman and push them to to um do something um, about Myanmar, um, impose more sanctions, perhaps. Um, but then, will it? I, I I don't know, and I and I and I struggle with that. Um, so, you know, that's also why I said I don't. You know, I don't necessarily think all parachute journalism is bad, and this is a a, a really contentious debate. And I and I think we just need to keep keep discussing it. Perhaps you know later down the line we will see oh you know this was because of this coverage that things changed but then was the coverage just for the sake of of coverage for the sake of a journalist or a camera crew going in and saying yep tick the boxes um i've covered kabul i've covered baghdad i've now covered myanmar i just need to go to yemen do you know do you know what i mean as opposed to looking at the impact of what they're actually doing and what that reporting could achieve yeah yeah and 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 you know it's it's so you know i talked briefly about the kaitels and if you don't mind me just 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 going into a little bit so the kaitels is a project um that Myself and a really good friend called Kelly McNamara, who's also a journalist, an uh, international journalist. You know, we took nine months um, unpaid leave from our full time jobs to travel across Myanmar in 2016 and 2017 and, I, and and you know we went back we've been going back quite uh, um, almost every year to try and collect more stories um, traveling across uh, Myanmar to collect um, the stories of ordinary people um, because we wanted to show that people should care that there are you know these are ordinary people with amazing experiences um, and that's almost like the opposite of the parachute journalism, right? Or even just general journalism, because we would interview people for an hour um, for a story, and at most we would end up using a couple of quotes from 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 that interview. And you know, we just felt like the people in Myanmar, the stories Myanmar has, um, it's just so rich, um, and that it's such a shame to to just to to not um give the space um to to have these stories told from a first person perspective and Myanmar has always been a very 
black and you know Myanmar has always been reported as a black and white story right the hunter versus Duan San Suu Kyi um, the military violence versus uh, the democracy uh, desiring people and there were just so much more more to that so many, many more aspects to that and you know, it's almost like, you know, if you talk about slow food, there's almost like the slow journalism, right? We spend about an hour and a half, two hours with people. And then we, yes, we do edit the interviews, but they're pretty much all in first person accounts because we feel like um, that allows the individual voices to come out. And we've done that um, with some of the stories we've published since the coup as well. You know, um, we've interviewed young people who have been protesting, not just in the big cities, um, particularly in minority ethnic areas, um, about why they're protesting, why they're taking part, what they think about what's happening. Um, and we did it again in first person accounts, quite, you know, some of them are shorter, some of them longer. And then we gave them all anonymity, you know, as a way of protecting them. Obviously, we can't always guarantee that their safety, but we tried our best. Like, for example, one of the interviews that we did you know, um, the person gave a lot of details um, as to their jobs, um, the things that are happening uh, near their community, um, what they do, um, you know, particular dates. And we just stripped that all away because we didn't want, we thought, okay, even if we put this little detail in, which would be great, but that means it could, you know, they could be identified or at least where they are, their location could be identified. So, you know, we we just have to be extremely careful about how we publish it. And we're very proud of the stuff that we have done. But then again, being completely realistic, how many people read the Kaitels versus how many people watch CNN, right? If you have to send a celebrity to care about what's happening, then perhaps, you know, sometimes that's what we need to do. And, you know, Kelly made this really good point when we were discussing about this issue. And she would say, you know, perhaps having a celebrity journalist or even having a celebrity celebrity um, is a shortcut to empathy for people. And then maybe that's what we need to do. And I like, I mean, I appreciate the fact that you acknowledge this because I'm, I'm torn on this debate too. I absolutely identify with everything that you've described during our conversation so far. But I also recognize the platform that, that these organizations provide. And, you know, there's a parallel debate going on in NGO storytelling at the moment too, mm. around the use of kind of celebrity white saviors and celebrities in general to try and get the message to a much wider group of people. On so many levels, it doesn't feel like the most ethical option. But without a good replacement, without a good way of reaching the, the same number of people, it's it's hard to only criticize that model you know there have to be decent workable solutions alternatives in place before we kind of throw the current system out and um, speaking of solutions what would you like to see happen with the current system of of parachute journalists as you call them how would you like to see that that model changed or modernized yeah i think i guess the first 
point would be if you know you are going to have um, a journalist parachuting in, um, maybe see if it could be somebody from the region um, instead of somebody half the world away. You know, somebody from the region um, with an understanding of 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 local issues as well as regional issues that can see a broader perspective. Um, that's I think less of a cultural gulf and less yeah. environmental impact too with all those air miles oh yes <laughs> absolutely absolutely some somebody with um yeah with with more knowledge of what's going on than just rudimentary you know somebody like for example somebody has something happened in myanmar fly somebody in from from London or Washington DC who has not done anything or who's only sort of read um, books on Myanmar. Um, Why can't you bring in somebody who's based in Bangkok or Jakarta or, you know, uh, or, or, or Beijing who knows some also of this, you know, the geopolitics around Mm. it. Um, There is a question. Is there a need for foreign eyes to give a a fresh look at some of the issues that that local people might be desensitised to? Definitely, yes. I do think it is worth um, having somebody come in with a fresh perspective. Um, I'm not denying that. Um, I think... It becomes an issue when you think that is the only way. Yeah, we don't, after all, with UK politics, for example, we don't think, oh, we need to bring in foreign journalists to report on the latest situation with the lobbying scandal or with Brexit well, in order yeah. to understand yeah, it. I mean, so it does make me wonder whether this is a bit of a um, a colonial mindset that we have here. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen all these, you know, sort of like parodies, right, um, uh, on, on, on social media or even, you know, I think Washington Post runs something like that. Like, you know, if um, the US or the UK were a third world country, how would we cover right. it? You know, like you would talk about, oh, um, uh, um, <clears throat> a despotic ruler, you know, trying to um, incite uh, the supporters in into rioting, or um, you know, a, a prime minister who is known for making um, completely politically insensitive remarks and having a lot of children out of wedlock or whatever, you know, in another scandal. Do, do you know what I mean? It's it's the the, the framing of things. It, definitely, I think the whole colonial mindset and this whole, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, Eamon Thunt, who's a, a former Reuters journalist, um, you know, she wrote this uh, a really hard hitting and critical piece about CNN on New Narrative, which is um, a, a Singapore uh, web publication, you know, talking about the white savior complex. And I think that needs to be acknowledged as well, you know, as to like, okay, you know, you need to look at it from, like, should we be looking at it from a different lens? I'm, again, absolutely agree that a fresh perspective is important. Um, <clears throat> but I think you, you need to be a lot more self-critical uh, uh, um, and there needs to be some reflection uh, before you, 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 you jump in, you know, on a plane to say, okay, hang on a minute, what approach are we taking? How are we going to take it? And, and I also think, you know, this whole notion of local journalists um, being 
just employed as either fixers without any byline. And so some of it might be absolutely, you know, warranted because of security reasons. Um, they do not want their name. But if it is not a very sensitive article, um, I think, you know, there needs to be a lot more recognition of local journalists' um, time and effort, um, which I don't think is happening at this point in time. I mean, there's this is a debate that's been going on for a while, and I know um, there's a lot of people who are pushing to change. And it's great to see that. But I think, you know, that's another aspect of poetry journalism that, that needs to change or be reformed. Do you think that the the CNN trip is kind of indicative of a wider trend or practice within parachute journalism or, or within the model of, of foreign correspondence? And I'm thinking particularly of the harm that many perceive was done with this latest trip. Most tangibly, I suppose, with these 11 individuals who were arrested after speaking to the journalist. Do you commonly see harm being done with reporting on humanitarian crises? Always at the back of my head, you know, sometimes when I am um, taking a picture or interviewing someone um, who has, you know, fled war in their home state or who had lost um, everything to an earthquake or a cyclone, um, I'm always wondering, would I ask the same questions? Would I do the same thing um, if I was in a developed country? You know, would I just walk into a hospital or a refugee camp and then just start taking pictures without asking for permission? And 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 it's something that I do struggle with. And I think a lot of other journalists I know do as well. Um, so when I was, you know, reporting on the Rohingya crisis um, in Myanmar, that was really worrying from about 2012 until about 2016. Um, I have been covering the issue in Malaysia and Thailand before that. And it was just really difficult because we do want you know, colourful story. And I was doing particularly humanitarian reporting, right? So in some ways that there is a delicate line between being a journalist where you are just reporting and informing um, versus being an activist where you are advocating and agitating. And, you know, the Thompson Reuters Foundation was very, very clear that what we are doing was was journalism. You know, we do fair, accurate and balanced reporting. We don't advocate or agitate. Um, so we still want, of course, um, you know, individuals with experiences um, that, re- that that will affect readers, that will touch readers, that readers can relate to, um, at the same time, need to be really make sure that when we leave the displacement camps or when we um, go back, you know, and do our reporting that they, you know, they are left behind, they're stuck in those camps, that they don't um, face any retaliation um, from from the state or other people. Um, and that's, that's always really, really hard balance um, to make, you know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, giving people anonymity, um, changing their names, 
but you still need visuals, right? You still need great pictures. You still need great videos. And you can't always um, blur people's faces. And sometimes people do want to be featured like for this this particular example um this was in thailand and we were interviewing this rohingya woman who fled uh, and was stuck in a a um a woman's shelter in southern thailand um and her husband's already in malaysia um and he really want her and their children to come to Malaysia um, to be with him. Um, and there were these human traffickers that would prey on that, prey on that, um, you know, desire to be reunited with your family. What they would do is they would turn up near these shelters and talk to the woman and then say, hey, um, we can help you. And a lot of the times there are always Rohingya men, you know, who can speak the same language and can build rapport, right? Sort of you trust people um, that you feel like from the same community. Um, and this poor woman, you know, one day snuck out of the shelter um, to, to, to go with these guys because she thought that they were going to uh, traffic across the border to Malaysia, where she can be with her husband. Unfortunately, they were taken to another house where she was just raped repeatedly by these men. She managed to escape. I mean, just horror upon horror, right? She managed to finally escape and go back to the shelter. But then, of course, she shouldn't have snuck out of the shelter. That's, a, you know, the Thai authorities' view. So she was sent um uh you know in a, a, a to 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 a police station where she spent time in a in, in a jail cell because she broke the law by leaving the shelter and we managed to you know we were just very um fortuitous to have been there when we got her out of the prison cell and back to the shelter um and we interviewed her and, you know, we took pictures um, and when the story ran, obviously it was really powerful, but we got, you know, um, a bit of pushback from some of the aid agencies for um, featuring her face. You know, they're like, she's going to, you know, be stigmatized. And we were very aware of it. Um, we had a, a, a Rohingya translator there um she spoke a little bit of uh, a burmese so i was there as well and you know myself and the translator we literally sat her down re and, and and repeatedly explained to her what the process is and you know told her look this is a news agency an international news agency we can number one change your name number two not show your face because if we do any of those things the stories you know, we'll have your name in your picture. And it's not just that, oh, your picture will appear in our story. It is that this is a wire news agency. So the story and the picture will appear in probably thousands of publications. And it will stay online probably forever. You know, going into real strict detail, the minutiae of what the implications could be 
She was an amazingly brave woman. Yeah, from a tiny village in Rakhine, not educated, but she was just like, no, I won my face there. I won my name there because I don't want other people to be taken in, other women to be taken in like I do. I mean, I still, I still, because we really spent a long time sitting down, talking to her, explaining in detail exactly what's going to happen. Because this is a woman who didn't really have access to internet, right? Just to get her to understand what that means. I feel we did everything we could, but there are times when I'm like thinking, do we, do we do the right thing? Maybe I should have taken the decision away from her. Maybe I should have said, no, no, we don't do this. Exactly. That's an ethical choice as well, isn't it? Deciding that her say in the matter is less important than yours. Exactly. Who am I to decide that she shouldn't do this just because I feel I know more about the media industry than she does? Did you know what I mean? It's, it's, It's a hard decision. And, you know, there was one, I would not name a country, but it is um, a country in Africa. And I wrote a report, um, a long story, which I'm still very proud of, that was mostly positive about what is happening there. But it just so happened that there was one quote that I attributed to a person that could be construed as as criticizing. Um, and and you know this was all on the record and i had double checked with that person and that person there were things that that per- they said where they were like this is off the record don't quote me on this because this is too sensitive and i did not so i only used the part um that was on the record but it still could be construed wrongly and that person was livid with me um, and wanted me to change the story. But about three or four days afterwards, you know, after the story had gone out and I spoke to the editors, I really pushed, but they were also like, well, the story's already out three or four days already. And we really don't think this could be construed as such. And, and, you know, I didn't succeed. I didn't succeed in changing the editor's mind. Um, I feel awful. I feel awful about it because we're like, yeah, you know, this was so innocuous. I don't think um, they'd be in trouble for saying that. You know, people will have to read so much into this. but, But then are we invalidating or negating the concerns of the person who is still in that country. You know, I really, re- I, I, I still regret that, even though it was just a quote in a, in, in a mostly positive story. Yeah. Do you know if they did face repercussions for what they'd said? They told me they were really worried. Mm. Um, and that they were warned there could be repercussions. Um, And I, from what I understood um, later on, it wasn't massive, but there was 
there was there was something you know um um it, it wasn't physical it wasn't um major but you know the fear was real and even if nothing happened um that the the that um couple of days of fear uh, was very real <laughs> yeah yeah now look, last question because i know you're very busy and we're recording this on a sunday um which just goes to show how busy your schedule is um i just wanted to dig into a bit more what you were saying at the beginning of that answer about whether journalists can be activists because Mm. i think this is a really interesting question particularly as someone that has kind of transitioned into communications for impact from journalism Mm. and there is this organization called Eighty Thousand hours which looks at all the most high impact careers in the world and has identified journalism as one of them and it's kind of encouraging young people to to look at journalism as a as an avenue to explore if they want to do the most good that they can do with their lives and of course that's a motivation Mm. for so many people that go into journalism or communications in this particular space where you're constantly dealing with social issues environmental issues some of the concerns which are of the most importance when it comes to impact on the world can journalists be activists and and how can journalists in that space not be activists oh well how how uh, how long do we have (laughs) as long as you have left (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the last question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I personally, I do think it is important to have that little line between journalism and activism. And I'm not judging anyone that crossed it. There are some amazing journalists that advocate and do stuff um and that will very proudly call themselves activist journalists um i guess just from a very personal perspective i think it is important to 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 have 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 that line um and that line again you know like i say it's it's very fine and can blur from time to time like for example what is happening in myanmar right now um makes it really hard for anyone, anyone with a sense of fairness and 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 injustice not to take side, right? You cannot say there are both sides to this story, uh, to what's happening in Myanmar. Um, I am very much, very much against the military coup, and I will say that on record. But I don't think that makes me an activist. Do you know what I mean? Um, I guess there's people that would disagree, though. There's people that would disagree. Like, if you take a position in a in a social issue, there are those that would argue that makes you an activist. Sure, I I, I don't think so. I personally don't. You know, do not think so. I, I I disagree because I think some of the issues. Um, yes, a lot of the world is not black and white, um, but there are some issues that I think is pretty clear cut. Climate change is one of them. You know, and there are people, of course, who will say, oh, you are now being an activist. I don't think so. Um, Because I think now I'm just, again, speaking only from my perspective. In Myanmar, 
I am against the coup for sure. And I am, I am against the violence that the military hunter is carrying out against its own citizens. Now, that does not mean I do not report uh, what were some of the shortcomings of uh, the civilian government. That does not mean I ignore um, the fact that there are real serious problems in terms of discrimination and oppression um, and censorship that is happening in the country from people from the pro-democracy side. Um, you know what I mean? In the same way with the climate change and the food security debate, yes, I believe climate is changing. Yes, I believe humans um, are responsible for a lot of it. There are those who believe journalists can be completely neutral. That is BS. You cannot be. We are human beings. We are part of community. I just don't believe you should be an absolutist, if you possibly can, mm. in, in many things in life. And if we want people to change their mind, if we want people to come on board, um, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about um, equality in terms of race, in terms of gender, um, you know, or a much more inclusive political space. I think we need to have people who, we need to have journalists who are credible, who try to be balanced and have that opening for people to change their minds. I 100% agree with that. And I, for one, have very much enjoyed the the nuance and the, the balance in the conversation that we've just had. So thank you so much for coming on this episode and, and sharing your insights with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting topics that I can go on discussing forever. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Storytelling for Impact following the conversation i'm reflecting on whether parachute journalism as thin calls it is patronizing and colonialistic or whether it's a useful way of gaining perspective on crises and conflicts in different parts of the world i think it's a bit of both there's no doubt that some journalism in humanitarian situations does cause harm as a cnn situation where local people were arrested shows or in cases where journalists fail to safeguard vulnerable people or children's identity in the quest to tell a more powerful story. But does that mean that foreign correspondents should be banned? I think that would be a mistake. Not only does their outsider status often mean that they can see things about a situation with an objectivity which you simply can't have if you're living in a region, it's often safer to have people who have the ability and privilege to fly out of the country once their reporting ends. And perhaps most importantly of all, if they work for an international media outlet or newswire, then they have a platform which enables them to reach millions around the world and actually affect real change. That isn't to say that reform isn't needed though. As Thin says, it's clear that the work of local journalists needs to be valued more and that the dignity and security of communities should always come before any journalist's latest scoop. What do you think? Follow Storytelling for Impact on Instagram and let me know. In our next episode, we'll be chatting to Sarika Bansal, 
a storyteller based in Nairobi who was the founder and editor-in-chief of Bright magazine, which told all sorts of stories about ethics within the social impact space. We'll be talking about the language of NGO storytelling and how to get it right. Until next time.